Alrighty then. Um, so we're going through church history, and we are just winding up the Age of Enlightenment, and we're talking about things that, as we've been prepping toward revolutions, as we've been seeing people getting more and more frustrating, we're certain we're finally reaching a level of I can't take it anymore on various levels with with people. So the the next thing after we finish talking about all these intolerables. By definition, is going to be oh, that's it. Revolution. We're we're done. So, when it comes down to intolerables, we can at least start by looking at the fact that the Jesuits are starting to be intolerable for the for the Catholics. Catholics are like we we just can't take you anymore. You're pushing it too hard. We talked a little bit about this. We talked about how the popes, like Benedict the Fourteenth, really smart guy, did a lot of different things, but couldn't stand the Jesuits, right? He had real problems with them, stood against them at every, at every turn. They were too biblical, huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, they're too biblical. They also, they, they pushed the wrong buttons. There are some things that we looked at the Jesuits and said, you know, you might be, you might actually be um, uh, pulling too much in from culture. You might actually be um, oh, what's the word? syncretizing too much with the cultures around you. But at the very least, the whole point of why you're doing it is to try to reach them for Christ. So they're, they're independent of Rome. Rome can't handle that. They're progressive, doing new things because new things are working. And Rome is like, no, we, we want tradition. We want you to do what we've always done. And the worst part is they're good at it. They're actually successful. So they're not just doing things wrong and messing it up so that in Rome you can go, see, that's why you don't do it that way. They're doing it wrong and succeeding, doing really, really well. And Rome's like, cannot handle that. Over the years, they've also been torquing off all these Catholic kingdoms in Europe. Remember Portugal, Spain, France, the, the Catholic kingdoms. So, Portugal is upset with them. Why? We may back up. Why is Portugal upset with them? Yeah! Brazil's like, we have been trying very, very hard to enslave everybody we can find in, in the Americas. And you Jesuits keep saying, um, we're trying to baptize them and bring them to Christ and stuff, and, and you're trying to enslave them. I think we're at cross-purposes here. They've even gone to war with them. The Jesuits have tried to go to war with the Portuguese to try to protect people in the Americas. Yeah? Because were they still following the rule of if they're Christian, they can't be enslaved? If they're um, their definitely, if they're, if, if they're Europeans, they can't be enslaved. But the, but the Jesuits are like, you really shouldn't be enslaving anybody. The Jesuits are beginning to get the impression that maybe slavery as an institution is a bad call. Um, but certainly the people that they're there trying to, to reach out for Christ, it's not even like a, well, the official law is. It's more like, we love these people. Please stop putting chains on these people. So King uh, is Jose, is how you pronounce it. No, not in Portugal, not in Portuguese. Jose uh, officially expels them from all Portuguese lands in 1759. No Jesuits get to be on any Portuguese land. Naughty, naughty. France says, we don't like you either. Completely different reasons. Number one, the Jansenists, and we've talked about these guys before, they're a bunch of Catholics who follow uh, the, the teachings of a, of a Dutch bishop named Cornelius Jansen, Janssen, who developed a, a, a theology that was very Calvinist. They're doing it within Catholicism, but taking a very Calvinist stance on things. It's the Dutch version of being Catholic. They're gaining strength in France. They're getting really popular, and they look at the Jesuits and say, "You're doing it wrong," because the Calvin, the the, the, the Jansenists say, "We still need to respect Rome," which is why we're not becoming Calvinists. We're becoming Jansenists. We still want to respect Rome, which you guys aren't doing. But we also don't like the fact that you're syncretizing with things. What you need to do is just be Calvinist at them. And so to, to the Jansenists, they're like, you Jesuits are extremely liberal because you're trying to reach people at where the people are at, and you're not obeying Rome in the process. Secondly, Louis XV has a favorite mistress named Antoinette Poisson, Jean, Jean Antoinette Poisson, a.k.a. Madame Pompadour. Madame de Pompadour was extremely powerful, quietly powerful, but still very, very powerful. She's very politically savvy. She is, manipulates um, policy all over the place. 
She is like one of the most powerful mistresses that a, that a king has ever had. And she, oh, well, by the way, it's where we get the, the, the hairstyle is named after a hairstyle that she liked. So that's how, that's how influential this woman is, is that her hairstyle is the original, the Rachel. What? I said it's still Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she was married at the time that she is having sex with the king, which isn't a good thing. And this is, this is what's interesting is, kings and queens were kind of expected to have lovers. They're expected to have mistresses. And so the church kind of turned a blind eye to the fact that that's probably naughty. Because if you remember, even way back to before the, 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 the Dark Ages, the church's original official stance was, maybe we should just regulate this. It's better that we have our own church-run brothels than to have people like cruising the streets looking for prostitutes. And so I mean, there were even some of those church councils where the church provided prostitutes for their bishops coming in because they didn't want them out on the streets looking for prostitutes. So the church sits there and goes, Louis, yeah, okay, whatever. You're a king, and we'd rather not have kings wandering out looking for prostitutes. You can have your mistresses. Mistresses, you don't get to be married to somebody else. That makes this adultery. And if you find yourself going, well, that doesn't seem fair, welcome to history. You know, that's, that's the way things work. But to them, they're like, you're married. This is adultery. And I don't care if you're if your husband is even fine with it because he gets political favors as a result, I don't care if you're fine with it, this is not cool. She chose as her confessor a Jesuit. And, the, and she swore to the confessor, she's like, it's just platonic. I, I'm just there as a, as, a, as a consultant. We're very good friends. I live down the hall from him, and we have an adjacent rooms that have a special passage toward one another's bedrooms. But that's just so that we can do Bible studies late at night. <laughs> Nothing's going on. So when the priest finds out that she's totally lying in confession, over and over and over again, he's like, no. You're t so you're an adulteress who lied in the confessional booth. He's like, yep, no, no, no. You're denied absolution. I'm not going to absolve you of sin, and nobody else gets to absolve you of sin. Well, if you can pay the right amount, don't you get absolved of sin? Only if the priest says so. And this priest says no. And you have to find a priest that would not only be able to absolve you, but that would go against another priest to absolve you. And so he's like, that's it. No forgiveness of sin for you. So she's not happy with that. And so she says, that's it. I hate the Jesuits. Well, you really should just hate this guy. It doesn't matter. This guy said, no forgiveness for you. So she hates the Jesuits. And because... Louis likes her, and she hates the Jesuits. He hates the Jesuits. So, France says, that's it. I'm censuring you in 1762. Okay, I'm closing all your schools, and then you have to recant your oaths in 1763. Okay, finally, you're dissolved in French lands. You're illegal in French lands in 1764. There is no Jesuit on French soil anymore. At least they got Spain, right? Portugal? No. Buttonheads about the slavery thing. France, no. Buttonheads about the whole Madame de Pompadour thing. Even in Spain, Jesuit friendly Spain, the remarkably unlikable Carlos III, remarkably unlikable king. Amazing. I said, remind me to ask you, to, 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 remind me to tell you sometime about his Your Hat is Too Big Law and the subsequent Sombrero Revolt. Because <laughs> You know, you poor people are wearing hats that look like rich people hats. They're too big. So I'm going to make it illegal for you to wear big hats. In fact, I'm going to tax you if you wear big hats. So you poorest people, I'm going to tax you. So this is why we have sombreros? This is why you have big stinking sombreros. Because <laughs> people are wearing, people start making like the craziest big sombreros ever. I'm not kidding. You get this amazingly uh, nine-foot sombreros walking around. You get this huge revolt. People are fighting over how big their hats are. And the, and the Jesuits, the Jesuits come in and go, okay, we've always kind of stood for sanity. So, guys, guys, do not march on the palace over hats. King, please, stop with the your hats too big laws. Please. I remember when I was in Junior high, I got my first detention. And the first detention, you don't have to serve. But I got my first detention. Pardon? How many 
In engineer high? <laughs> one, my, one my seventh grade year and one my eighth grade year. I never had to serve either of them. But I got my very first attention uh, when the whole math class was being loud and obnoxious and they were doing all these different sort of things. And being a true geek at the time, I'm sitting there listening and I'm starting to get frustrated because I'm like, guys, I want to know what he's talking about. He's explaining something and I'm not understanding. So I said, guys, please, let's be quiet. And he said, that's it, Kevin, detention. I got attention for saying, guys, please be quiet. They're throwing paper airplanes. And you didn't do anything until I said, guys, please be quiet. And I got a detention. Changed my whole worldview. Uh, I'm like, you're a doofus. So anyway. Trust me, we all have teachers like that. Yeah. It's just like NFL. The second guy who hits is always the one who's That's right. <laughs> Jesuits come in. Guys. Guys, let's all just be not crazy. So he says, that's it, Jesuits, you're expelled. 1767. Doesn't explain it. He just needed a fall guy. He needs somebody, and I can't just pick on the people with the big hats because they're on the, on the verge of, re of revolt. So what do I do? I need somebody to be a fall guy. I need somebody who is clear, some mental picture that people can wrap their heads around. The Jesuits walk in, people, let's all be sane. He's like, Okay, you just walked into my sights. You're expelled. And they went, who did who did what now? Wait, but we're Spanish! What, did, what is your problem? Never explained it. Ironically, all these kings, including the Spanish king, against the Jesuits, the Pope at this time, liked them. We had a succession of popes that hated the Jesuits. Pope Clement XIII goes, no, no, I actually like them. These guys are good. They're sharp. They're doing good work. So everybody's pushing Clement, they're like, suppress them, suppress them. He's like, no, I like them. They're doing good. Let's, let's be nice. He refused to suppress them. All of his cardinals are pushing him. He's like, but I like them. So he, he would write things like, Jesuits, please stop doing some of the things that you're doing. There, that's my paper bowl. You know? um, hey, Jesuits, maybe you should not rankle so many people. Okay, guys, let me censure you for completely ignoring what the papal see, the, 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 the Pope says. But that's it. I'm just admonishing you to do a better job. But I refuse to censure them because I like them. Unfortunately, his successor, Clement the Fourteenth, can't stand them. And so, like, one of the first things he does is, is saying, that's it, you're suppressed. You're not allowed to meet together. You're not allowed to operate on any Catholic lands anywhere. I'm not dissolving the order. You can't do anything or meet together as an order. You can be a Jesuit. You just can't do anything. I love that. And that does all in the order. You just can't. Two Jesuits can't get together and talk about being Jesuits. And you can't do anything as a Jesuit. But you can still be a Jesuit. Now, can't operate on any Catholic lands. And that only includes Spain, Portugal, Italy, North and South America, the Far East, and the Holy Roman Empire. Anywhere else is fine. You want to go to England? England goes, we don't want you. We're not Catholic. Okay, fine, fine. You want to go to Prussia? And Prussia goes, we don't want you. You're not Catholic. Or we're not Catholic. Okay, but anywhere other than Protestant lands who don't want you or Catholic lands, you're fine. Yeah, they don't want them. It kind of stinks to be a Jesuit at the moment, is what I'm saying, okay? Luckily, Clement didn't officially dissolve it. You can still be a Jesuit, right? And secondly, the Holy Roman Empire and Russia go, we don't care what Rome says anyway. Right? Russia's going, we're not Protestant, but we're not Catholic. Sure, come over here. And the Holy Roman Empire goes, yeah, we're, we're Catholic. We hate Rome. I love that. The Catholic Holy Roman Empire says, we don't care what Rome says. But we're, we're happily Catholic. Would it annoy Rome for us to let you come here? I'll build you a city. You know, it's, 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 we're fine with annoying Rome. So the Jesuits kind of retreat into the Holy Roman Empire and Russia. Still not a lot of fun to be a Jesuit at the moment. All right. 1768, the Russo-Turkish Russo War kicks in. The new king of Poland, 
Spanish law is a whip. He's a total whip. He's got no strength whatsoever. If you remember, Catholic, uh, 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 Catherine the Great is ruling Russia now. Extremely strong woman. Her ambassador in Poland has more power in Poland than the king of Poland does. The ambassador keeps dictating terms to him. And so Stanislaw's own nobles begin to rebel against him because they say, you're just a puppet government for Russia. We want to make a, a, confederacy, a, a confederation of Polish states, not because we want diplomacy, but because we don't want to be Russian. We want to be Polish. Led in part by a dashing young cavalry officer named Kazimir Pulaski. There you go. I knew you'd like that. More on him later. But remember this guy. This guy, you look at him, go, oh, it's like Basil Rathbone. Yes, this guy is cool. So he helps. Is that why we get off on March? No, that is not why. But wait for it. Okay. Wait for it. Soon. I'm waiting. Soon. Not this week. Soon. Okay. Oh, no. i got to keep people coming back to these classes. I talk about history for an hour. i got to do something. That in and of itself can't be the pull. Anyway, you might ask, you might say, well, wait, I thought we were talking about the Russo-Turkish War. We're talking about Poland. Who cares about Poland? Except that you'll notice that the Ottoman Empire butts up against both Russia and Poland. There's a point here where you've got Russia, Poland, and the Ottomans, the Turks, all bumping heads over here. Russian troops start cracking down on the Confederation that are trying to fight against a Russian puppet government, and they're, they're killing all the Confederation people here down south. You can't go into Russia because those are the people you're fighting against. You can't go deeper into Poland because you're actually technically rebelling against Poland. So where do you go? Yeah, you go into Ottoman territory. Green. You go into the Ottoman territory, which the Ottomans were fine with. They're like, you're destabilizing Poland and torquing off Russia? Fine. That's fine with us. What they didn't like is that Russian troops started coming down and invading, like, the Crimea to start stomping on separatists. Does this sound familiar at all? Mm. That Russia's like, yeah, we're going to cross our borders to stomp on separatists over there in the Crimea? Yeah. The Ottomans don't appreciate that. Um, and poor Kazimir Pulaski and other guys are getting stomped on, and they've got nowhere to go. If only there were a place where people who are having trouble with their monarchy and would like to create their own confederation of states could go. Maybe? Hmm. In about a decade, there will be a place where people who are dissatisfied with monarchies and want to create their own confederation of states can go. Maybe Casimir could go over there. See where I'm, yeah, I'm throwing the bone. Okay, yeah, okay, there you go. Right. I'm catching uh, the years. There you go, there you go. Okay, so technically, Turkey has all sorts of numerical support, superiority over Russia. They've got superiority in every way over Russia, except, ironically, the Ottomans have been at peace for so long. They have been the world's most peaceful empire. The Muslims over here, you know, in the Middle East. The peaceful uncle. They have been the world's most peaceful empire. Where all these guys have been picnicking on each other. These guys have been peaceful. They're so good at being peaceful. Nobody in their armies and navies have fought anybody for like centuries. Are you? You're being serious. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so you sit there and you go, okay. Russia has this little navy over here, but they're all been trained by seasoned veterans of the of the British Navy. They imported a lot of people over here to go, train us how to do this. We don't have as many ships, but we're better. They're better ships, better armed, with better people running them. And so even though they have a smaller navy, they take over what they need to take over there. And the Crimean Tatars over here declare their independence from the Ottomans. They're like, that's it. We're going to be allies of Russia. We like them better than we like you. They've been trying to destabilize this region for a while, and we're going to let them succeed. Although, technically, what that means is they just got conquered by Russia. Right. Because Russia has never just said, <laughs> You want to work with me in diplomacy? Yeah. You'll be my ally. Oh, wait. Now you're all Russia. <laughs> yes! So, Crimea and Eastern Poland become Russia. Again, does that sound familiar to you? Wait, Russia took over Poland? No! Yes! 
they keep doing it. Now, if you say, what Poland do? Poor Poland. He always gets the shaft all the time. Yeah, and remember Stanislaw, kind of wimp. So you say, well, this is unfair. You know what's really unfair? It's about this time, the major power said, we'll just take Poland all together. Let's partition it up. There is no Poland. For the next 123 years, there is no Poland. Because now it's all Prussia and Austria and Russia. There's no Poland anymore. And Stanislaw goes, oh, maybe I did this wrong. Yeah, yeah, maybe you did. Wacky fun being Poland. Anyway, same year, James Cook sets out to explore the Pacific. Anybody here, Captain Cook? Good, yay, yeah. Pardon me? Ha! He's a merchant sailor from Yorkshire, volunteers. He was not drafted, he was not clubbed over the head, not pressed. Volunteered to go to the Royal Navy to serve during the Seven Years' War. Technically, I should call it the French and Indian War because Cook served primarily over in the Americas. And over here, we called it the French and Indian War, right? He's a good leader, but what he's really good at is making maps. He's really, really good at navigation and making maps. In fact, the map of Newfoundland that he, that he, that he designed in 1767, sailors were still using it into the 20th century. That was the map of Newfoundland. For like 300 years, this was the map of Newfoundland. Pretty impressive. The guy is really crazy good and crazy accurate at this. So, there, so England said, oh, okay, if we had to send somebody to the Pacific, which is predominantly getting stomped on by the Portuguese and Spanish, right? They're like, if we got to send somebody to the Pacific to kind of map it out, and who, who would you send? Who would you send to map out this unknown territory? You go, this guy. Now, technically, they're sending him out to, to map it out, and they said, you know, Venus would be extremely easy to see from Tahiti at this particular time of year. If you can make it to Tahiti by this time of year, Venus is going to do something really interesting, and we'd like somebody there to check on the astronomical, and you go, okay. Once he crossed into the Pacific, he got his sealed orders that said, and we want you to go to Terra Australis. We can't tell anybody that until you're gone and half a world away, but we want you to go here. This is why you're going to the Pacific. Europe knew that there is some sort of terra australis, southern land. That's what that means. And you'll find it on all the maps. Even though nobody has seen it yet. They're like, there's this lush... Lush. <laughs> there's this lush, fertile, gold-filled land to the south. If we could just get there. But strangely, every time we go around one of the capes, it's really horrible down there. It's really hard to get down there, but we know that there's going to be something good. So there's this Terra Australis. The Dutch has even, have even mapped out the, the western coast of this Australian, i.e. southern, because that's what that means, Australian coastline in the 1600s. They're like, you know, if you go down from, like, uh, Malaysia and stuff, there's, there's this big place. And so they called it New Holland, and they mapped out the north and west parts of what we now call Australia. But nobody's ever tried to settle there. Which technically means that New Holland is up for grabs. Whoever gets there and can settle it gets the whole continent. If we tell you that, then the Dutch who know where it is and the Spanish who know where it is might try to settle it. So we're not going to tell you until you actually get to the Pacific and can crack open your orders and realize you're there to plant a flag on New Holland and call it our thing. This is kind of fun stuff. I mean, it's just, it's like secret agent kind of things. So he stopped at the newly discovered island of Tahiti. Because why wouldn't you? Right? <laughs> I mean, you just go there and you go, this might be the most beautiful place ever. And you got all these extremely pretty natives going, hi, can I kiss you? Yes. Yes, you can. So he makes his way over there. He makes his way around New Zealand and proves that New Zealand is, in fact, a couple of islands. It's not part of New Holland, which means it's already up for grabs. So let's make it British. New Zealand is now British. And then he goes to the eastern coast of Australia, which he names New South Wales, which is why the eastern part of Australia is called New South Wales, right? But he's calling this whole thing, technically, New South Wales, just like the other guys called it New Holland. Thirteen years later, after he has mapped this out very, very well, 
England finally sends a fleet of ships to New South Wales to establish a penal colony at what Cook had labeled Botany Bay. Because it had all sorts of really cool stuff there, stuff that nobody had ever seen before, like really interesting botany. So he called it Botany Bay. So England says, yeah, penal colony. We're getting rid of all the convicts that we don't know what to do with. Throw them over there down in New South Wales. Get rid of them. By the way, technically, that makes it a settlement, which makes it ours. Woo! So you sit there and you go, but Australia's really inhospitable. Right. Nobody's going to want to go there to colonize it. That doesn't mean that we can't send people there to colonize it. I don't have to ask them if they want to go. I can say, do you want to... Do you want to stay in Newgate Prison? Or do you want your own farm, your own ranch, all this kind of stuff? It's not going to be easy. But you'd rather you'd rather reign in hell than sit in hell. So, yes, go. You get to go to New South Wales. And, <laughs> and the weather's better in Australia than England anyway. Not always down here, but yes. <laughs> but, think about, but think about that. That was just thinking brilliant. It's like, nobody wants to settle this place, but we really want to own it. So what do you do? Send people there that don't want to go anywhere. But that sounds better than any of the options they do have. Right. So part of that, like, what made America flourish and everything was because of the, um, like, the crops and stuff in the yep. trade. Was it economical for them to, like, they're sending these people to farm down there. Was it still economical to get the trade? It was crazy economical because you're not supplying colonists. You're sending convicts. You don't have to give them any supplies. Okay. You give them basic supplies and say, try to survive, knock yourself out. It's escape from New York down there, basically. Is you know, this is we've we've thrown you into an island and said, kill each other or don't kill each other. If any of you survive, it's our island. And so there's enough guys going, Well, I can do a can I have a ranch, I guess, I can do this, and you get enough of it going that it lasts and it becomes England. So yeah, it does become economical. Because then if you can get any trade from them at all, it helps. And if you don't, you go, still England, and if we can ever figure out what to do with this, it's ours. So yeah, it's a it's an extremely economical way of doing this. It's throwing them into the deep end of the pool, but who cares? They're convicts. Are, so so was it scary? Did they get along okay? Or, actually, I don't think I've ever read about how. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to get too far into okay. that. Talk to me afterwards. It's very interesting because, it, yeah, who's, who said yeah? Because because there were some people who were like, oh, I'm I'm a bad guy. But I mean, it's like prison movies, you know. It's, oh, I'm a bad guy. Other other guys going. I wasn't necessarily that horrible person to begin with, and I've got a new chance at this. Guys, if we actually work together, ironically, taking a bunch of convicts and throwing them into the wild civilized a bunch of convicts, because they realized, this only works if we actually don't kill each other all the time. You know, there's all these people going, ah, oh, road warrior, we're going to wear football paraphernalia and, and shoot each other. <laughs> other people going, stop! This can actually work. By the way, there is a reason why Places like Australia came up with things like Road Warrior. This idea of, you know, you throw people into the mix and they'll just go crazy. But there are always going to be some people that say, no, I want to stand for rationality. You go, it started like that. That's the whole point. It started with Road Warrior. Mad Max going, all right, wait. All right. Pardon me? I was going to say, what about the indigenous? Well, again, that starts getting really colorful. I don't want to go there right now. But England eventually did start shipping women down there. It's like, you can't find a husband here? I know exactly where you can find a husband. Trust me. Not going to be a problem. I'm not the most attractive. Trust me. Not going to be a problem. In all, Cook makes actually three voyages circumnavigating the globe. Well, two and a half. He didn't survive the last one. On the third trip, he was the first European to visit what he called the Sandwich Islands. Does this look familiar to you? Yeah, well, that's Hawaii. Yeah, it's this is the state of Hawaii. That's the island of Hawaii. But it's the Sandwich Islands, named after the Earl of Sandwich, who was the first, first Lord of the Admiralty at the time. Whoa, so we had a sandwich named after him and the yeah. islands? This, no, is, this is the same guy that the food stuff is named after, right? What? Yeah, because here's why. Because he didn't want to eat. Okay, depending on the story. He didn't want to eat, and so they put the meat between two slices of bread so he could eat it while he's playing cards. Two versions of the story. At least that's the story. Two versions of the story. One is that he's playing poker and didn't want to stop. The other one is he's the first Lord of the Admiralty. He sits at his desk working all of the stinking time, and you have to take him food. And really, both actually could work. I don't know. Um, is it that he's just such an ardent gambler or such a hard worker? He was both, so it's kind of hard to know. But whatever it is, he was doing stuff, and his servants would bring him 
a sandwich so he could keep doing whatever it was he was doing. Obviously, this is not the first time that people put bread, meat inside of bread. This is the first time that English had a word for it. I mean, people were making euros for years before this. But this is the first time English people said, I'll just call that a meat between bread, food, let's call it a sandwich. That's what sandwich does. Let's just do that. So yes, he gets that and that named after him. But then he sailed north in that same trip to map out the Bering Strait because he's a mapping guy and to map out Alaska itself. What did you bring up earlier? Which is why this is called Cook Inlet. Because Cook is famous for being in Hawaii and Alaska. In the same trip! That guy got around. I mean, he went to Australia and he went to Alaska and Hawaii. Oh, yeah. He was all over the place. He went back to Hawaii and that was unfortunate because the natives figured out he wasn't the god that they thought he was. And they weren't happy about that necessarily. <laughs> Go figure. Um, he didn't handle that really well. Uh, they didn't handle that really well. And he ended up getting killed really, really nastily on shore. Chopped up into little pieces and things. And, and, and the sad thing is, is, it was on shore. So everybody on the ship could actually watch him getting killed and couldn't do a darn thing to stop it. Um, and then the natives dragged him off and gave him a chief's burial. They gave him a funeral for a great man. And you just go, did you hate him or did you respect him? The answer is yes. So yes, they, they killed him rather nastily and then said, but in his death, we realize he's a powerful man and we want to honor him. And they even gave his, I shouldn't say buried him, because they gave his body parts back to his people, who then took them with them. So yeah, it's very interesting, uh, very interesting story. Very profoundly affected history and European understanding of the Pacific, but he also, kind of important that he trained a couple of important seamen that are worth commenting on. One of them was a young sailing master named William Bly of the Mutiny on the Bounty fame. If you've heard of Captain Bly, Captain Bly was Cook's sailing master. A lot of movies that talk about this uh, try to explain the mutiny by saying Bly was a tyrant and the mutineer, the chief mutineer, Fletcher Christian, who was Bly's like, best friend, they knew each other from back when they were merchant seamen. Fletcher Christian is a square-jawed, reluctant hero who saved the crew from Bly's cruelty. Time and again, that's the way movies portray this. <laughs> Bly is a grumpy man, and Fletcher Christian is the square-jawed hero, right? Because that totally works. You tell an American there was a mutiny, and it has to be, well, this is around the Revolutionary War, we were throwing off the yoke of intolerable Britishness. Which is interesting, by the way, because English, 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 American, American, American. Now, you might say Australian, but he's born in America, and he lives in America. He grew up in Australia. But it's English, 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 American, American, American. So I'm telling you, there's a political way that we tend to view this story that comes out in our movies. What, what did you say? You should, I said, if he walks like a dog, talks like a dog, Yeah. Like anyway. Truth is, not all that much American, actually. Um, Bly was actually really, really nice. It was extremely fair. Um, an historian was talking at one point, it's like, he reprimanded when other people would have beaten them. He beat them and when other captains would have killed them. He was unusually nice to his, to his people. He took good care of them, made sure that nobody got scurvy or anything like that because he made sure that they got good food. He was very good captain. Not always the best leader because he was, he was a little thin-skinned. He was always like, you know, they don't like me enough and they don't respect me. But once Christian and the relatively inexperienced crew reached Tahiti, all of a sudden they all idea, all right, everybody back on the ship and we're going to eat hardtack and keep going on the ocean. They're all like, this is from the movie poster, by the way, from the Marlon Brando version of Mutiny on the Bounty. They just go, okay, everybody back on the ship. We're going to go back into discipline lifestyle. Everybody's like, um, no. How about no? I kind of like it here. I know. Back on the ship, though. We have duty. I, I don't have duty. I think I'm just going to hit, hit, stay here and sip stuff out of a coconut. Some scholars have even said the reason that there was a 
I find this ironic. The reason that there was a mutiny is because Bligh was so nice. He actually didn't have the kind of discipline that other captains had. And because he was so nice, people felt like they could question him more. And because they felt like they could question him more, there was a mutiny. But in American minds, we go, no, no, no. If you're more democratic, it's healthier. You go, actually, if you're more democratic, not necessarily. There might have been a mutiny, not because he was such a tyrant, because he was the opposite. But because Christian was a friend of Bly, they said, we're not going to kill him. Instead, we're going to take him and 17 other loyal crew members, put him in a lifeboat, and set him adrift in the middle of the Pacific with food for a week and no maps. Because I don't want him dead. Yeah, you're like, you're 4,000 miles from any kind of safe British port. Is he going to make it to a safe British port? Can you really say you're going to go 4,000 miles in a week with these 17 guys and no maps? Luckily, Bly was trained by Captain James Cook. <laughs> Bly, on only with a compass and his memory of the maps, navigated the boat for 4,164 miles to a safe British harbor. It took him 47 days to do it, but the very first day they're out, he said, guys, we're not going to... We're going to be out here long, longer than a week. We're going to start rationing food, and we're going to do this in a very disciplined way. And I'll keep you alive. And he kept every single one of them alive, except for one guy that got killed when they went ashore to reprovision, re got killed in a native attack. But he was out on a boat for 47 days for 4,000 miles, never lost one person, and ended up exactly where he wanted to be. I mean, just went and there's where we're going. And everybody on the boat went, you are the greatest captain ever! And I bet they were really disciplined then. Crazy discipline! He's the thing to go, your crew mutinied against you. You are being court-martialed. You don't, you don't get a mutiny and not have a court-martial. But at his court-martial, he was acquitted of any wrongdoing and commended for getting his crew home safe. They're like, you know what, when we look at this, you're an awesome oh, British captain. Necessarily going to let you, you know, captain another ship sometime soon. But we're going to give you, a, we're going to give you a, a, a raise and a, con a, a commendation. And what happened to Christian? Did he ever hear about that? No, Christian. Strangely, strangely, the mutineers had a mutiny amongst them and split up. And then uh, some of them went back to Tahiti, and that didn't end well. Some of them went to Pitcairn Island, and that didn't end well. And they started killing each other on Pitcairn Island, Island until the last two. Same guys killed the last crazy guy and tried to run the colony at Pitcairn as well as they could after having kidnapped multiple women from Tahiti because you can't just have a colony with a bunch of mutineers. So you look at it and you go, so Bly took his guys in a little bitty boat, got every single one of them except for the guy that got attacked by the natives, got them home safe. Fletcher Christian took the lion's share of the guys in the well-provisioned ship. Most of them killed each other. So which one was the healthy side of that? Mutiny? Watch a better movie. Anyway, <laughs> another midshipman was a guy named George Vancouver, um, who also followed in Cook's footsteps because he learned how to be a really good surveyor and a really good cartographer, and he charted out the west coast of North America looking for a northern passage, which is why two cities called Vancouver, right next to each other in, in America and, and, and uh, Canada, are named for Vancouver. So... I'm telling you, Cook was really cool. And the people he trained, he trained really, really well. Anyway, speaking of the West Coast, Spain founded the first missions in California in 1769. Sometimes you think, oh, but Spain had been around there for 200 years. You know, yeah, but they hadn't been founding ongoing missions. Technically, though, a chunk of California didn't belong to Spain, but to England. England owned a large chunk of the West Coast. 1579. 30 years before Jamestown on the East Coast, secret agent, because he was, James Bond, secret agent Sir Francis Drake, sailed around the globe and claimed California for Queen Elizabeth. In secret. Because that's the stuff he did. And he had, like, a watch that could do all sorts of... No, I mean, that's just, this is the way he was. Uh, long story short, because they said, we can't hold it. I mean, Spain's got the greatest navy in the world. We just can't hold it. What we're going to do is, we're going to plant flag, we're going to be able to prove our claim, but we're going to keep it secret until we can hold it. Until we can trot out some kind of proof, but have enough wherewithal that we can actually do something about it. 
which for the next 200 years they really couldn't. But after the Seven Years' War, now they kind of could. So in the, in the 1760s or 70s or so, Britain starts trotting out this claim going, we can actually prove that we own part of California. We own the West Coast. Crud, we don't even own the East Coast anymore. Bad timing that for England when you think about it. It's like just about the time that they're like, hey, look, we're finally strong enough. We have a strong enough Navy. We can actually hold something in the United States. Wait, no, the United States is kicking us out. Wait, no, but we can finally do it. Which is why the colonies said, you know, technically we own that. So people talk about Manifest Destiny and go, these jerks, they want to take everything that belongs to everybody else. Colonists said, actually, it doesn't. Technically, it is British-owned territory in the Americas. And we just declared that all British-owned territories in the Americas are independent from Britain, which means technically, we do stretch from sea to shining sea. It's not just we're, we're greedy. Well, let's be honest, they were. But it's not just that they're greedy. They're also like, you know, it is ours. Legally, it's ours. Northern California belongs to us. <clears throat> Wacky fun. But technically not everything in the middle that's owned by Spain you. and France. Well, right now it's only owned by Spain. But, uh, yeah, we almost have to buy that whole Louisiana area before we can actually get to the other stuff that we own. Huh. Again, wait a couple weeks. Anyway, Southern California definitely belongs to the Spanish. That's all theirs, especially because they've been tromping around on it for two centuries with pointy sticks. So, I mean, yes, it's theirs. The Jesuits have officially been banished from all Spanish territory since 1767, right? So all the work that they've been trying to do over there, they can't do anymore. They're gone. They can't do it anymore. It's all done. So Pope Clement XIV, who didn't like them, called on the Franciscans to found new missions, what with the Jesuits not being able to do it. So he's like, go to the California territory and do it. So, under Junipero Serra, Juniper Serra, remember him from a couple weeks ago? Yeah. The guy who just got sainted. The guy who just got sainted, the guy who, you know, out of the goodness of his heart, beat the snot out of the Indians under him. Yeah, yeah. Under Junipero Serra, the first person canonized on, on American soil by a pope, the Franciscans established the mission of San Fernando Rey in Baja. And so, there you go. Now we've got a mission station. And then, they turned that over to the Dominicans. They're like, we established it, now you guys run it. And we're going to go north to the mission of San Diego. We're establishing Franciscan missions. In fact, that year, two Franciscans were on their way to start yet another mission in Monterrey and came across two infants dying in a native village. One had been burned, one is malnourished. They're both going to die. Non-Christians, what do you do? You baptize them. You want to save the souls of these non-Christian infants. And so they said, can we borrow your infants and put water on their heads, to which the natives went, okay, whatever. It's no skin off our nose, I mean, they're going to die anyway, so yeah, all right, I don't understand this. So they baptized them, christening them Margarita and Maria Magdalena, the very first baptisms in California. Now, if you see that as a sweet thing, or it's kind of a sad thing, all kind of depends on your theology, doesn't it? Because Catholics look at that and go, that is so sweet. It is so sweet, the first two, these two babies that otherwise would have gone to hell. But now these priests have sent them to heaven. If you're coming at it from my perspective, where I would say, you don't go to heaven because a priest moistened your brow. You just took non-Christian infants from their non-Christian families. Nobody's expressing anything about Christ at all. You moistened their brow and said, now they're going to heaven? Like, yeah, that's a sad precedent to set. Up to you, how you want to take that. But it is one of these things where Really, really, looking at that, it's either a, oh, or a, oh. Well, the parents and the rest of the colony don't, like, they don't think anything of it either, which, yeah. I mean, we see nowadays parents who, people who grew up Catholic, and then now are like, oh, I have to, you know, but that aren't practicing or anything, like, oh, I have to go back and baptize my kid in the ceremony. Yeah. But I just, it doesn't mean anything to me. Well, this is a couple steps beyond that. There are, like, we don't even know what Catholic is. Right. We have no idea what you're talking about. We have absolutely nothing. No connection whatsoever, nor will we. Anyway. Uh, unlike most missionary efforts, Spanish never actually got past reaching out through mission stations. A lot of times you'd have a mission station and then bring in priests or pastors or whatever, build churches, and go forth from there, right? 
In the southwestern United States, the Catholics never really got past a bunch of Franciscans running all this stuff out of their mission stations, which is why, for instance, in Zorro movies, when he's talking to the local priest, it's a Franciscan. He's not some guy in a black outfit with a clerical collar. You go, no, he's a Franciscan monk. Because the Franciscans are running all the churches and things because it's all still a mission effort. Which is why in New England, you'll go and see all these old New England church buildings. You go to the American Southwest, you see all these old Catholic missions. I think that's interesting. The rest of you are kind of glazing over, so I'm just going to move on. Anyway, I think it's interesting. It's, wow, a totally different way of looking at this. All right, 1770. Mazur wrote... Pardon me? Mazur. Mazur? That's how it's spelled. No, Mozart. Wrote his very first opera in 1770. He was born in Salzburg in 1756, which is right there. Um, and if you're doing the math, yes, that means he wrote his first opera when he was... 14 years old, which ain't nothing, because he wrote his first symphony when he was eight, so deal, right? <laughs> his first opera was a bad Twilight YA novel. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare equate Mozart with Twilight. <laughs> Leave the classroom right now. <laughs> Alright, so, oh my goodness. Um, well, even when he's like three or four, he's correcting his sister on the clavichord, his older sister. So he's like, this guy is stinking brilliant with this. His name is Johann Chrysostomus Wolfgang Theophilus Mozart. Named after John Chrysostom, who's who? We, I know, this is a stretch. We talked about him like two years ago. Who's John Chrysostom? He's the guy that went out in the desert, whatever, sitting under a tree writing. No, that's Crazy Anthony. <laughs> that was, that was uh, Brother Anthony who started the monastic, but oh, good memory. John Chrysostom, the, the, the name literally means John Golden Throat. Best preacher the world had ever known. He's the guy who preached and pastored the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople that had the emperor and empress of the Byzantine Empire in his flock. The greatest preacher ever. And his middle name is Theophilus, meaning love of God, right? That's the name that Dr. Luke's patron had that uh, he wrote his gospel in his, the book of Acts for. So his name is Greatest Preacher Ever, Wolfgang, Love of God, Mozart. What does that suggest to you? You think so? That's, that's, the, that's the vibe I get from that. Now, having said that, he, he preferred the Latinized version of his middle name. He tended to go by that instead of Theophilus. Anybody know how you would say, Theophilus is Greek. How would you say love of God in Latin? Amadeus. So he's Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, though technically his name is Wolfgang Theophilus Mozart, if you like the Latin. Yes, this is from the movie poster, so deal. There's, you know, the movie Amadeus. How many people have ever seen the movie Amadeus? Okay, well, the rest of you go. Yeah, okay. Um, He's the son of a composer and music teacher named Leopold Mozart, who encouraged his son and daughter, as Mozart's older sister, Maria Anna, to tour Europe as child prodigies. She would sing, he'd play the clavichord, they're like eight, you know, and, and he's, he's writing symphonies. Kind of impressive when you think about it. Now, I need to back up. When I was younger, my music teacher uh, taught us that Leopold basically prostituted his children, trotting them all around Europe and making money off of their abilities, exploiting them. Just like the Jackson 5. Actually, just like the Jackson 5, yeah. <laughs> However, everything I've ever read... <laughs> at least he had talent. Anyway, everything I've ever read suggests that Leopold loved his children dearly. They loved Leopold dearly. It was not like that. It wasn't him exploiting them at all. He just said, you know, Salzburg is too small for you. Kind of like when Philip looked at Alexander the Great and said, you need to find a new kingdom because Macedonia will be too small for you. And, and that's what Leopold is like. You kind of got to get out there because you can't just stay in Salzburg. By the way, Wolfgang said, you know, I don't think I can stay in Salzburg. So later on, he's in Salzburg and then decides he can't handle that either. Um, about the only time that they had any kind of conflict at all uh, that we know of was when a 25-year-old Wolfgang got sped up with Salzburg Prince, 
bishop, which is an interesting concept in and of itself. Within the Holy Roman Empire, they had things called prince bishops. If you were the bishop of an area, you get to be the secular priest of that, or prince of that area. If you were the secular prince of that area, we'll make you a bishop of the church. You get to have all the secular power and all the religious power in a given area. A very smart man once said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't know any prince bishops that weren't utter twerps. I mean, pretty much all of them, it got to their heads. And this guy, no exception at all. And he was, it, Wolfgang got so sick of this guy. And it, it, it's like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in Salzburg anymore. I want to go away. The bishop, Prince Bishop, sorry, treated Wolfgang like a menial servant, paid servant. It's like, all you are is you're just like my footman. Not even like one of my best paid servants. Wolfgang's even composed for the imperial court of the Emperor Joseph II. He's been to Vienna. He's, he's, he's been Mr. Bigwig. The Pope has decorated him and honored him personally. Said, this guy is awesome. But the Prince Bishop goes, you may have impressed, you may have impressed the Emperor or the Pope, but you're in Salzburg now. This is the big leagues. You ain't nothing to me. Well, and I should back up here and say, um, Wolfgang's like, please, just let me resign. Let me go somewhere else. The Prince Bishop goes, no, no, you're, you're my court composer. And if I pay you chicken feet, I pay you chicken feet. I work for God. In Salzburg, I am God. No, you're going to stay here, and you're going to work for chicken feet. Because God wants that. That honors God. Don't you want to have an obedient attitude toward God? Do it as an act of worship. Here. Here's a penny. Go buy yourself something. But you're staying here. I really kind of hate you. And I really want to go away. But the Prince Bishop's whole thing is like, but to do that is to dishonor God. Because I'm speaking for God. You can't do it. Yes? Their pictures kind of show this conversation. Because he's like, this and then he's like, Come on. Yes! I, I do cho choose these pictures carefully. Anyway, so Leopold, Leopold says, Wolfgang, you're wrong. It's the one thing that we know that they disagreed on. But even then, Wolfgang's like, you know what? I'm never going to get past being a salaried employee. That's all I am. I'm just a local composer. I'm good enough to know just how amazingly good you are. Do not torque off your patron. You're going you're gonna to undermine your livelihood. Believe me, it may never get better than this. It never gets better than this for me. So even though, the one argument we know that they had, it wasn't even like Leopold's like, you're a horrible person. It's like Leopold going, son, I worry about you. Please, please keep your mouth shut and just, just stay in Salzburg. You, you won't live forever. Just wait it out. You're 25. You've got your whole life ahead of you. And Wolfgang's like, Dad, no! You, you had your whole life ahead of you, you're still stuck in Salzburg! I don't want to be stuck in Salzburg! I want to go away! And he's a twerp! Yes, but he's the twerp in charge. But I should clarify, both Leopold and Wolfgang are devout Catholics. So Leopold also is like, and he is the bishop. There's still this sense of, I don't care. I don't care if he's roasting babies on spikes. I don't care if he's raping small children. He's the bishop. You don't get to tell him no. Because that's the way this works. And now we're back to, if the priest says you are Christian, you are Christian. Who cares what you think? Who cares what your parents think? The priest has the authority. If the pope says it's good that you're a Jesuit, then it's good that you're a Jesuit. If the Pope says, it's not good that you're a Jesuit, then it's not good that you're a Jesuit, because he has the authority. Now, again, we're sitting in the United States, our knee-jerk reaction is to go, no! Because, you know, authority bad. We'll go back to Bly, authority good. Bad authority bad, right? So, try to get past your Americanization and going, oh no, free yourself from constraints! But do you see why? There is a strong move in the Protestant church in Europe of going, this is an inherently bad system. If you can't question it, something's gone wrong. So you want to honor authority, but you need to be able to measure how wise your authority is being. Right? 
Anyway, by the way, the bishop finally, bishop, prince, bishop, finally did allow Wolfgang to resign, and being the classy guy that he is, he specifically told his assistant, kick him in the butt on his way out. Literally, kick him out of here. Kick him in the butt. Show that even though he got what he wanted, I'm still in charge. Humiliate him on his way out. Classy, classy fellow. Anyway, i got to go back to something. Contrary to what I was taught, contrary to what you see in the movie Amadeus, cool though the movie is, the Mozarts are really, really strong Christians. This is really important to them. In a letter uh, to his wife and son, Leopold wrote, God must come first. Again, from his hands we receive our temporal happiness. At the same time, we must think of our eternal salvation. Young people do not like to hear about these things. I know, because I was young once myself. But thank God, in spite of all my youthful, foolish pranks, I always pulled myself together. I avoid all dangers to my soul and ever kept God and my honor and the consequences, the very dangerous consequences, before my eyes. Please, Wolfgang, take this seriously. Next year, Wolfgang wrote back to his father, I have always had God before my eyes. I know myself. And I have such a sense of religion that I shall never do anything that I would not do before the whole world. But I am alarmed at the very thought of being in the society of people during my journey whose mode of thinking is so entirely different from mine, and that of all good people. But of course they must do as they please, but I have no heart to travel with them, nor could I enjoy one pleasant hour, nor know what to talk about. For in short, I have no great confidence in them. Friends who have no religion cannot long be our friends. Very devout guy. Remember, this is also the same Mozart that when you heard the, the same year, when you heard that Voltaire died, it says that godless fellow and arch rascal Voltaire is croaked, dead like a dog, like a brute beast. That's his reward for being so irreligious. Mozart took this very, very seriously. He's like, do not thumb your nose at God. It's a shame that most people, when they think of Mozart, either think of just, he's a musician, like he's some wind-up toy. That's it. What did Mozart do? He did music. That's all they know. Maybe they know he did really good music. Maybe they even know he did really good, really complex music. Maybe they even know that he was so crazy good, he would hear something and go, let me transcribe that, because I got it all in my head now. I took, you know, even when I was a kid, it took me like half an hour to learn concertos and stuff. You just know it. There's a famous thing with Clement where he's listening to a piece of music that if on pain of excommunication, you were never allowed to transcribe and play elsewhere outside of uh, the Vatican because it was designed just for Jesus, thus just for Rome, just for the Pope. And he heard the piece of music and sat down in the Vatican and played it note for note. Clement could have gotten really upset, but Clement went, no, 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 you're a really good Catholic, so kudos to you. Anyway, it's a shame that people only think of him as a musician or they think of him as this rock star of his age, right? <laughs> this buffoon, which is the way he's portrayed in the movie, Amadeus, if you've, if you've seen it. It's, it's a major subplot of the movie, is that his rival, Salieri, didn't like him in part because he was such a buffoon. He's like, you've got such talent, and you're such an idiot. But that's not the way he was. He was actually a very loving, Christian, family-oriented guy. He made, a, he made a lot of money, and he lived it out. He spent all the money that he had. He liked to live on a high-end lifestyle, with his wife and children. Sent his children to the best schools. Big, lavish apartments for him and his wife. It wasn't like he just went out and partied all the time. He liked to dance. He liked to, to gamble. But everybody did back then. And that meant that once the economy started drying up, and people didn't want to pay exorbitant money to just go see concerts, he didn't have any savings to fall back on. So he started having to ask for money for people. He realized he was living beyond his current means. And it's really hard to ratchet that back once you're there. But there's no indication that he lived anything immorally. The most we could say is that he really liked bathroom humor. Technically, so does Scott Christensen. So, I mean, it's... it's, it's oh, good. But he does... But he did it rather foul. He liked to use really foul language, especially about defecation. He really liked talking about poopiness. Um, he wrote a song, um, Lick My Butt. Um, <laughs> Yes. He wrote a letter to his sister saying, poop, be, poop, be, poop. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. The letter like, poop, be, poop. Not poopy, though. Poopy, 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 poopy. I love that word. Poopy, poopy, poopy. What a wonderful word. Poop, 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 poop. Poopy, doopy, doop. It's the word ma. 
rhyming with the, it's like, okay. <laughs> but then so did Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln really liked dirty jokes and really liked talking about poopy all the time. It's a thing. Welcome to history. Okay. Anyway. Since we're saying, hey, history, let me clarify. Mozart's even really good friends with Antonio Salieri, the villain in the movie. They liked each other. I mean, there's a healthy rivalry, a little, you know, well, you've got that position, I kind of wanted that position. But they liked each other. How is it that this movie is so far off of... Because they get a lot of things right, but you have to amp up the tension and amp up the drama. Artistic interpretation. Um, but it's, I, almost, it's almost bordering on defamation. Sort of, yeah. But then again, I also look at Braveheart and go, have you read a book? Anyway, <laughs> he also met with and had great respect for it, because in the movies, he's like, I don't care about anybody else's work but mine. You know, he met Johann Christian Bach, the, the son of Johann Sebastian Bach, and said, oh, I learned great things from him. Georg Friedrich Handel. He's like, oh, yeah, Handel taught me this and this and this. Oh, I love those guys. Joseph Haydn. They're really good friends. And he's like, oh, he was awesome. Haydn said, yeah, Mozart's like the greatest composer I've ever seen. Mozart's like, oh, man, I can listen to Haydn all day. Tremendous respect for all these people. Possibly, maybe, even a very young Ludwig von Beethoven, who went to Vienna to spend some time learning from Mozart. We just don't know if they ever actually met. But he, they overlapped in Vienna for a couple weeks, at least, where Beethoven was specifically there to interact with, with Mozart. We don't know. By the way, Beethoven, his father did do that. Everything that we just said didn't happen with Mozart, yeah, that's Beethoven and his dad. Beethoven's dad was an alcoholic who was trying to beat young Beethoven into being another Mozart. We're going to capture lightning in a bottle again. So that's what I want. I want you to be Mozart. Go be Mozart. Beethoven had the horrible childhood that we oftentimes like to put on Mozart because then it explains his bad behavior, which never existed. Mozart died from an unknown illness. There's a couple of different options as to what it was. In 1795, at the age of 35. And the really sad thing is, is the economy was getting better. So he was actually getting work again. And he was finishing up some of his greatest work. His, his student had to kind of finish his requiem. But he's like, I'm starting to make money again. I've got prospects. And he gets sick and dies, which is, which is kind of sad. It was an extremely cold and violent rainstorm slash snowstorm. I don't know if you can picture a storm that has rain, freezing rain, and wind, and snow. But if you can get a mental picture, his funeral happened like last night in the middle of it. The nastiest, rainiest, coldest, snowiest part of it. So only like three friends. Even his wife didn't go to his funeral because it was just so nasty. Most of his family didn't go to his funeral. But only like three friends showed up to stand there in the rain and snow and nastiness for his funeral. Salieri was one. So, when you think about history, you've got to stop and say, it's not exactly the way the movies show it. I like a good historical movie. I even like a mediocre historical movie. You just can't base your history on it. So help me out here. Let's end. Any themes? Anything you can see about what's going on here at the end of this decade? Or anything that you want to pull out as we finish? One thing, when you said that they already had territory in the west mm -hmm. of America, I always thought that they were going over to discover what was over there. So that kind of surprised me, actually. It's just the middle bits they didn't know. You know it's, it's yeah, like they knew the sides. Was, well, they may not know the west coast that well. They knew it really well. Vancouver had already mapped it out. The Spanish had already mapped it out. They knew exactly what it looked like. They just don't know how to get there. And they knew that there were big waterways. And they're like, did any of these waterways go through? Which is why they're looking for that passage. They're like, there's a big river. Where's that go? You know. I know this is what? further in the future, and we haven't got to the Revolutionary War yet. Oh, but, um, how about when you had that map up with Cal... Um, Canada and stuff. Uh -huh. Why did our country? Why did we end up stopping and having? Uh, tell you what, I'm going to I'm going to specifically say we'll explain that when we get to the okay. revolution. I won't. 
It's a good question, but I don't want to go there. Think, oh, themes about today? Anything? Yeah, it's like, boy, yeah, he's a good guy. Mozart, yeah, class act. Really? Wait, Northern California. British. But there's also this sense of thing. Think about authority. Who has the authority and how is it being perceived? Who's in charge and why are they in charge? And how do you deal with that? Do you respect it? Do you not? Is it respectable? Is it not? How do you interact with that? All this on the cusp of a revolution that says, your authority is intolerable. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today, and thank you for everything that's gone before. I pray that you be glorified as we stop and think, how do we honor you? How do we honor our authorities? Help us to be obedient when we need to be obedient. Help us to be corrective when we need to be corrective. And in everything, help us to have a, a heart that says, how do I best honor you? Give all this over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry about that, Nikki. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just thinking.